This is Audiobook Warriors. AW presents an unabridged recording of Manacled by Senlin Yu. Narrated by Katie Matthews and directed by Prana Opal. And now Manacled by Senlin Yu, Chapter 15. Hermione was fertile again. The table reappeared in the middle of the floor and she felt resigned by the sight. It had started to feel inevitable. Inevitable. Hermione realised with a dropping sensation that she was growing accustomed to her cage. Malfoy was going to rape her over a table and the thought had become matter-of-fact to her. Even the word rape had started to feel faintly inaccurate. Everything had started to feel... less. Physically and mentally, the dread had begun to fade as her mind forced her to adapt. She didn't feel nauseated. Her heart didn't pound painfully. The wrenching sensation in her stomach didn't feel so oppressive she thought she might be choking from it. Her mind was twisting itself up with rationalisation, trying to make her adapt, to make her survive. If her situation ceased to chafe, she would be less likely to risk an escape attempt, less likely to provoke Malfoy. She could understand it scientifically. From the perspective of a healer, she could explain the physiology and psychology of it. It was unsustainable to remain in a state of constant fear, constant horror, constant dread. Her body couldn't maintain her in a permanent state of fight or flight. She would either be forced to adapt or she'd burn out. The potion Malfoy had dosed her with had probably aided in dulling it. Understanding the science didn't make the realisation better. It made it worse. She knew where her mind was headed. She was acclimatising to the manor. The thought shook her to the core. She stared at the table and felt at a loss as to what to do about it. It wasn't as though she could fight him. She couldn't resist any more than she already was. He wasn't doing anything that hurt. If she paid attention, stopped pulling her mind away, it would likely make it worse rather than better. She had to escape. That was all there was to it. She had to escape. Had to find a way. There had to be a way. No cage was perfect. No one was perfect. There had to be something in Malfoy to exploit. She just had to find out what it was. She had to. She had to. She kept repeating the resolution to herself, even as she walked across the room and leaned across the table, feet apart. Don't think about it, she told herself. Worse things could happen if she let herself think about it. I'm going to escape, she promised herself. I'm going to go somewhere where people are kind and warm and I'm free. She squeezed her eyes shut and mouthed the promise to herself again and again until she heard the door click. She watched the days of January slip by. Malfoy came for five days. On the sixth day, he arrived and wordlessly inspected her memories. He seemed preoccupied. Then she was left to her own devices. She folded origami, she explored the manor, she explored the estate, she read the newspaper. Reports on the war efforts were getting relegated to smaller columns. Public fascination with the surrogates was slowly beginning to swallow the society pages. They were appearing more and more frequently in public, trotted about, taken along to the opera, 
treated as though they were exotic pets. Pictures of their bonneted figures were being featured along with aggressive gossiping. Was it swelling or merely the fit of their robes? Unnamed sources said suggestive things like, There's a chance the Flints will be adding a name to the family tapestry by the end of the year. Healer Stroud was tight-lipped with reporters, which only served as fuel for further speculation. Hermione's panic attacks almost seemed a thing of the past. She had measured out her limitations and tried not to exceed them. When she remained focused and occupied herself with studying portraits and exploring the manor and the grounds, she was able to stay calm. When she tried not to think about the war and how everyone was dead, she gradually got so good at keeping herself preoccupied that she would momentarily forget that she was forgetting. She'd breathe in and experience a moment that didn't feel broken or grieving or despairing, when it was just her loneliness that stretched out before her. The guilt that would strike her a moment later was as cold and bitter as seawater. She'd freeze for a moment and then swallow the lump of horror in her throat and renew her vow to escape. But she couldn't escape. She'd explored the manor from top to bottom. She found a set of wizard's chess and played matches against herself. She built card towers with packs of cards she discovered in a drawer. She visited the horses. There was no way to escape. She tried to find Malfoy but never managed to. She didn't know if he was even in the manor. He could have been out or just behind a door she couldn't open. It sometimes felt as though he must be avoiding her. She had no idea how she could possibly escape. Hermione began to see Astoria with increasing regularity. The familiar click of heels in the distance and Hermione grew adept at promptly disappearing behind a curtain or into a servant's passage. The servant's passages were filled with cleverly concealed peepholes. Hermione suspected that, given the utilisation of house elves, the twisty little tunnels had always been primarily used for spying. The manor was crammed with them. Some were obvious, others extremely well concealed. Hermione found them all. Any time the dimensions of a room seemed vaguely off, Hermione set to work, tapping lightly along the walls and pressing every knot in the wood, twisting at every sconce and screw until she felt something give. Some doors appeared magically, while others were cleverly built using gears and rotating furniture. Astoria was rarely alone when Hermione saw her. She was accompanied by the same dark, broad-shouldered man Hermione had glimpsed on New Year's. It soon became apparent that either Astoria or her paramour had some sort of objection to beds. The first time Hermione encountered them, Astoria was nearly naked and pressed against a parlour window. They seemed to be trying to have sex in every room in the manor. Hermione did her best to avoid them. She didn't particularly fancy the thought of Malfoy using her memories to watch as his wife was shagged from all angles. Hermione entertained the notion of watching just to spite him, but then dismissed it. Malfoy didn't appear to care about what Astoria did. It would probably have no effect on him. It would just be extremely uncomfortable for Hermione. Whenever Hermione stumbled across Astoria mid-coitus, she would quickly avert her eyes and slip away. For a time, she merely caught glimpses of the amorous pair while fleeing, but eventually Hermione came across them both fully clothed. 
Hermione had been wandering through the topmost floor of the north wing when she caught sight of them, strolling along the gravel path, running along the hedge maze. Astoria was speaking animatedly, and as she spoke, the man beside her turned and stared up at the north wing. As Hermione watched, she finally caught sight of his face. Graham Montague. Hermione stared down in shock as his eyes carefully scanned the lower windows of North Wing. When he craned his head back further, Hermione stepped sharply back and out of sight. Hermione's heart was suddenly pounding. Graham Montague was Astoria's lover. Montague, who had just happened to come across Hermione during a New Year's Eve party, who had expected Hermione to immediately recognise him. He was having an affair with Astoria. He was visiting the manor almost daily. He was looking up toward the window where Hermione's room was with an expression of intense determination. Was it all a coincidence? Could it possibly be a coincidence? Hermione reviewed all the scenarios she could think of. What did she know of him? Slytherin, former member of the Inquisitorial Squad, badly injured by Fred and George. At some point during the war, Hermione had known him and forgotten it. He was having an affair with Astoria. He seemed to be looking for Hermione. Was he a Death Eater? Hermione didn't know. Unless he had been working in the Ministry, he would have had to have joined Voldemort's army in some capacity. He seemed too high socially to have merely been a snatcher, and he hadn't demonstrated much familiarity with Ministry officials at the New Year's party. Hermione replayed everything she could recall from the night. She'd been so absorbed watching Malfoy and then the surrogates, she hadn't connected that Astoria and Montague had been missing at the same time. When she'd watched him later in the evening, he'd been mingling, but he'd seemed most familiar with Marcus Flint and Adrian Pusey. Despite her uncertain memory regarding the war, Hermione was fairly certain that Flint and Pusey had been, last she recalled, mid-tiered, unmarked Death Eaters. Earning a dark mark had been considered significant distinction, and admission into Voldemort's most select inner circle. As Voldemort's hold on Europe had grown more certain, he had marked fewer and fewer followers. Therefore, the logical conclusion was that Montague was also a Death Eater. Marked or unmarked, she didn't know. But that didn't explain why he would have any interest in or acquaintance with Hermione. Unless... Could he? Hermione was half afraid to even contemplate the notion, to allow the thought to exist in her mind where Malfoy might find it. But she couldn't stop herself from thinking it. Could Montague have been a spy for the Resistance? Could he still be? Could that be what he'd been trying to communicate to her before he'd left with Malfoy? She started watching Astoria and Montague carefully whenever they weren't having sex. She spied on them from the secret passages and grew increasingly convinced that Montague had ulterior motives for being in the manor. He was extremely interested in the house, and his eyes wandered strangely whenever Astoria was distracted. Hermione weighed the risk of trying to approach him. He was rarely alone. Astoria didn't ever seem to grow more than a few yards away from him. On the few occasions when Hermione did spot him alone, she hesitated. He felt so unfamiliar. Surely if he was someone she trusted, she'd feel it instinctively. She tried to reason with herself. 
If he were a member of the resistance and she were to approach him prematurely, she might expose him. If she didn't have a way to remove the manacles, it would all be futile. Hermione decided to bide her time and continue watching. Better unconfirmed suspicions than anything concrete for Malfoy to get from her. She kept wavering. Hela Stroud came and found that Hermione was, once again, not pregnant. Her expression as she surveyed the diagnostic results seemed irritated. Hermione stared determinedly at the clock on the wall. Why are your sodium levels so low? Hela Stroud asked after performing several more tests on Hermione. Hermione glanced over. They don't provide any salt with the food. They don't? Hela Stroud said in a tone of surprise. What are they feeding you? Hermione shrugged. Boiled things, vegetables and meat and eggs, and rye bread. Why? I assumed it was what they were instructed to feed me. It's not as though I have the freedom to question anything, Hermione said coldly. You're supposed to have a balanced diet. That includes salt, Hillstroud said with an expression of annoyance. She reached forward and tapped the manacle on Hermione's wrist with the tip of her wand. A minute later, Malfoy entered with a scowl. You called, he said. Yes. Is there any reason why she isn't being given any salt? Hillstroud said. Malfoy blinked. Salt, he echoed. She says her food is all boiled and has no salt. It's starting to affect her sodium levels, Hillstroud said. Her eyes narrowed as she stared at Malfoy. Malfoy's eyebrows went up in apparent surprise. The elves were instructed to provide her with meals. I assume she was eating what Astoria and I do, he said. Then his jaw clenched slightly and his own eyes narrowed. Astoria is responsible for approving the menu. I'll find out what happened. Please do. The Dark Lord is growing impatient over the lack of progress. We don't want anything interfering. Indeed, Malfoy said coolly, meeting Heela Stroud's gaze. Now if there's nothing else, I must return to my work. Of course, High Reeve, I won't keep you, Heela Stroud said, giving him a final look before turning back to Hermione. That night, Hermione received a full meal with side dishes and a fresh salad, seasonings, and, most significantly to her, a salt shaker. She hadn't realised how much she'd missed salt until she finally had it again. In retrospect, it wasn't exactly surprising to realise Astoria had decided to order the house elves to keep Hermione on some kind of prison's food, peasant's fare. Hermione wasn't even sure what had been intended to be. The woman was odd. Her indignance over Hermione seemed to manifest in whatever strange way she thought she could get away with it. And gotten away with it she had, for three months, approximately 270 meals. Hermione never wanted to eat another overboiled vegetable. Malfoy entered Hermione's room when she was almost done eating and walked over to survey the food on her plate. Apparently, I'm obliged to personally assure everything, he said with a scowl, after the meal apparently met his expectations. You could have mentioned it. If I were to start complaining, the food would not be the first thing I'd bring up, Hermione replied, stabbing a tomato viciously with her fork. He gave her a thin smile. No, I don't suppose it would be. 
He walked over to the window and stared out over the estate while she finished eating. She intentionally took her time and mentally recited all of the irritating, repetitive songs she'd learnt in primary school. As she focused, she glanced over toward him. She could see his profile and noticed as his eyes became briefly unfocused. I hope you die the slowest and most horrible death anyone has ever devised, Malfoy. She immediately snarled in her mind. After a moment, he blinked and glanced over toward her expressionless. She met his gaze unapologetically. Noted, he said, then gestured toward the bed. Hermione walked over resignedly and seated herself on the edge before looking up at him, unblinking as his cold, silver eyes sank into her consciousness. She always ended up flat on her back by the time he'd finished going through her memories. He watched her memory of Ginny several times. Then he watched her spying and wondering about Graham Montague. He withdrew from her mind. Montague got a dark mark after the final battle, he said, staring down at her. It was, I'm told, an acknowledgement of the exceptional services he rendered. He was sneering as he said it. Did you provide exceptional services too? She asked, gaving up at Malfoy. She had no idea if he were lying to her about Montague, whether he would bother to. He stared down at her and gave a cool smile. More exceptional than Montague's, he said. Then the smile faded. He kept looking at her, studying her face carefully, and then flicking his eyes down over the rest of her. His gaze seemed softer and darker than usual. She realised belatedly that she was lying supine on a bed before him. She felt her skin prickle. She sat up quickly. He stared at her for another moment before glancing away and staring at the wall behind her. If you have any hopes involving Montague, you should let them die, he said coolly. Then he turned and left. A week later, Hermione had a new dream about Ginny. Hermione was standing in her bedroom in Grimoire Place when Ginny walked in. You're back early, Ginny said. Hermione glanced down at her watch. Lucky day, Hermione said. Yeah, said Ginny, looking slightly awkward. Um, I wanted to ask you about something. Hermione waited. Ginny tugged nervously at her hair. Her face was unblemished. I, well, you obviously know about me and Harry, Ginny said. Hermione gave a short nod. Right, well, the thing is, I want to be careful. I've been using the charm, but there's something about Pruitt's. They're not like other wizarding families. They just get pregnant somehow. Ron and I were both accidents after the twins came along. So I was wondering if you'd make me a contraceptive potion, if you have the time. I was always rubbish at potions, and if you can't, that's fine. I can ask Padma. I know you're terribly busy. I just... I didn't want you to think that I didn't want to ask you. Of course. I'll be brewing tonight anyway. It will be an easy thing to include. Do you have a preference about taste? The most effective ones don't taste very pleasant. I don't care what it tastes like if it works, Ginny said boldly. Well, I've already got a few vials of one variety. I can give them to you now if you'd like. You do? Ginny blinked and stared at Hermione suspiciously. Are you... Hermione could see Ginny running a list of possible men in Hermione's life. You're not with Snape, are you? Ginny suddenly choked. Hermione gaped. 
God, no, she spluttered. I'm a healer. I keep a lot of things on hand. Good grief, what, why would you even? Ginny looked slightly abashed. He's just the only person you ever seem to talk to for long. Aside from Fred, who's with Angelina. Everyone else you just end up fighting with. And not in the hot and bothered, angsty, sex later kind of way. Doesn't mean I'm shagging him, Hermione muttered, feeling as though her face were about to burst into flames. He's a colleague. I consult with him about potions. You just seem lonely, Ginny said, giving Hermione a long look. Hermione started slightly and stared at Ginny. You don't talk to anyone nowadays, Ginny said. You used to always be with Ron and Harry, but even before you left to become a healer, you seemed more and more alone. I thought maybe you had someone. Granted, Snape would be a weird choice for a lot of reasons, but it's a war. It's too much for anyone to handle alone. Cathartic shagging is Ron's thing, not mine, Hermione said stiffly. Besides, it's not like I'm fighting. Ginny looked at her pensively for a moment before saying, I think that the hospital ward is worse than the battlefield. Hermione looked away. She'd sometimes wondered if it might be, but it had never been a question she could ask anyone. Ginny continued, I think of it every time I'm in there. In the field, everything's so focused. Even when someone's injured, you just apparate them away and then head back. You win some, you lose some. You get hit sometimes, you hit back. And you get days to recover if it's bad or if your dueling partner dies. But in the hospital ward, every battle looks like losing. I'm always more traumatised after being in there than I am by fighting. Hermione was silent. And you don't ever get time off, Ginny added. You're on duty for every skirmish. They can never spare you, not even to let you grieve. I know from Harry and Ron that you're still pushing for dark arts when you go to the order meetings. I don't agree, but I get it. I realise you see the war from a different angle than the rest of us. Probably the worst one. So, I'm just saying, if you had someone, I'd be really happy for you. Even if it was Snape. Hermione rolled her eyes. You should probably stop talking now if you still want that contraceptive potion, Hermione said with a glare. Hermione woke in a state of shock. Ginny and Harry had been together. Ginny and Harry had been together and Hermione had no memory of it. There was not so much of a trace of it in her recollection. She'd forgotten it entirely. Harry and Ginny's relationship had been something she'd forgotten. Intentionally? Was that what Hermione had been hiding? Ginny had still been alive when Hermione was imprisoned. Ginny hadn't been in the final battle. She hadn't been tortured to death alongside the rest of the Weasleys. Hermione had thought Ginny was still alive until Hannah had told her about the High Reeve. If Voldemort had known of Ginny's unique significance to Harry, her death would have been horrific, far worse than even what had been inflicted upon the rest of the Weasleys. Hermione would have done anything to protect Ginny, stolen away her own memories to try and spare her, for Harry and for Ginny herself. Ginny had been a constant friend during the war, not close, but ever constant in her friendship with Hermione, even when schisms had developed in many of Hermione's other relationships. Ginny and Luna and Hermione had roomed together in Grimald Place until Luna died. But Ginny was dead. Malfoy had hunted her down and killed her. 
Hermione felt like she was going to be sick. Was it really all that pointless? She'd locked away her past to protect Ginny, not knowing Ginny had already died. Hermione had gotten handed over to Malfoy and dragged in front of Voldemort, and it was all to protect someone who was already dead. And Snape. Hermione had tried very hard since her release to not allow herself to think about Snape. She'd thought he'd been on their side. He'd trained her into a potion mistress. He had devoted countless hours of his personal time to do so. Shortly after Dumbledore had been killed, she had descended into the dungeons to Snape's door and asked in a steady voice, If there's a battle, what potion should I know how to make that I probably won't be able to find to buy anywhere? Rather than sneer and slam the door in her face, he had invited her into his office. Until Hogwarts was shut down, she had spent every evening until late into the night in his office, brewing one exacting, complicated potion after another. When Hogwarts was abandoned, he'd continued to teach her at Grimaud Place. The enigmatic man had slowly seemed to thaw from pure exhaustion as he trained her. He had no energy for insults. He was hard and demanding, but generous with his knowledge. He had seemed to be one of the only other people who was also bracing himself for a long war. He shoved stacks of his own personal annotated potion texts into her arms to read and drew up maps of where to forage for her own ingredients, where there would be a few sources to buy from. In the middle of the night and early in the mornings, he took her with him all over England. He would apparate from location to location to teach her how to find plants and harvest them so that the potency stayed high. He taught her how to build snares and catch and humanely kill the animals and magical creatures needed for potion ingredients. He didn't even say anything when she cried after killing her first Mertlap. He had trained her until she qualified for a potion mastery. She had been his staunchest defender during the war. Charlie Weasley grew to hate her for siding with Snape over almost anyone else. She defended Snape's methods and everything he did as a Death Eater as being necessary. She had protected him when Harry and Ron wanted to have him removed from the Order. She'd considered him more than a colleague or mentor. He had been someone she had trusted implicitly. It had all been a ruse, a clever ploy. Without Dumbledore to vouch for him, he had cultivated a new champion for himself, twisted her around his finger by being generous with his knowledge. He bought her loyalty with a potion mastery. Then, once victorious, he'd cast her off. He'd had a chance to spare her from being included in the breeding program, and he'd declined. He had departed for Romania and left her to be bred. To be raped. It was such a bitter and deeply personal betrayal she could barely bring herself to think about it. She got up and read the newspaper. <laughs>